We are walking through the rubble of what was the home of a family until September 13 in the municipality of Sokht in Armenia, near the border with Azerbaijan. On the night of September 12 to 13, Azerbaijan carried out a wide-scale attack against Armenia, targeting some towns and civilians in an unprecedented escalation of the long-running conflict between the two South Caucasus countries. It continued until evening of September 14. Both sides, Armenia and Azerbaijan, blamed each other for escalating the attacks. As a result of the nighttime shelling, this house in the Armenian town of Sotk was brutally burned. Personal belongings and furniture consumed by the fire. Only a saucepan resisted among rubble and ashes. The, there, there was a family living here the day of the attack. Fortunately, there were no victims because this attack happened the second night and this family had left the house shortly before out of fear, explains Hakov Avetian, head of this community. This is the latest round of violence in the long-lasting conflict that Armenia and Azerbaijan have been engaged in over a dispute over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh for decades. Ethnically Armenian but geographically located within Azerbaijan, both countries have disputed the enclave since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The conflict has seen two major outbreaks of war. The first one took place from late 1991 till 1994, and the second occurred during six weeks in the fall of 2020. Last week, the worst fighting took place since that war, since 2020. To understand it better, we have spoken with Richard Giragosian, the director of an independent think tank located in Armenia, working in support of government and public policy, as well as youth and education. Before we jump into the rest of the podcast, I just want to make sure that you understand whose voice is asking all the questions. This is Lola Garcia Hofrin, our colleague from Outriders, who is actually currently based in Yerevan, Armenia. So it was a great opportunity for us and for her to talk to all the people and explain you the situation. These days, especially these two days, uh, in the European media and abroad, everyone is talking about Armenia and what is happening in the border. Could you explain us for a foreign audience that maybe don't know well what is happening there and what is the conflict between Azerbaijan and sure. Armenia? Unfortunately, what we saw on in recent days, specifically on September 13th, a middle-of-the-night attack by Azerbaijan that targeted Armenia. This was a serious military escalation resulting in unacceptable casualties and damage. But it's not surprising because the root cause of this particular military clash was the unresolved nature of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which is actually an Armenian-populated enclave that is disputed by uh, Azerbaijan's demand to control 
and restore sovereignty over the enclave. But the majority Armenian population in the enclave voted to join with Armenia or for independence. And this is an unresolved conflict that also was the trigger for an even more devastating war in 2020. During that time, there was a 45-day war, and the Armenian side lost militarily, and Azerbaijan is now in a much stronger position. The conflict remains far from resolved. The most recent escalation, however, comes three weeks after a diplomatic summit between the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan in Brussels. And this is a result of important European Union engagement. Obviously now, looking back, it was not enough to prevent such a dangerous resumption of hostilities. I wanted to ask you why now, because it's true that it's very interesting that after a meeting that apparently everything is going to be resolved in the time, why now there is this kind of provocation, we can say? Very good question. I would say there are two specific factors or drivers determining the timing of this particular escalation. First is the perception and reality of Russian weakness. In other words, Russia's failed and egregious invasion of Ukraine has revealed the weakness of Russian power. What this means for Azerbaijan is a sense of self-confidence and opportunity to actually fill the vacuum with Russia distracted and overwhelmed by its invasion of Ukraine. Azerbaijan sensed an opportunity to push Armenia and punish Armenia. The second reason or driving force was counterintuitively the recent diplomatic summit. What this particular escalation represents is an attempt by Azerbaijan to strengthen its bargaining power in negotiations um, in order to uh, go back to the negotiating table diplomatically in a much stronger position. Until now, Nagorno-Karabakh is considered a territorial conflict, but now we see also that uh, there are many things involved. The uh, Pegas corridor, the service of corridor, I don't know if I pronounce it well. Uh, energy is playing a role in this conflict? Very much so, in two specific ways. First, in a general sense. Azerbaijan has significant oil and natural gas reserves. The oil resources are a curse. In other words, it is due to the oil and energy riches in Azerbaijan that it has fueled corruption and made development much worse. And if we look internationally, only one country in the world, in history, that has oil has become a democracy. It's Norway. Only because Norway was a democracy before discovering oil. Every other country from Saudi Arabia to Venezuela struggles to balance energy against corruption. The second 
factor making energy an element of this conflict is a recent agreement Azerbaijan concluded with the European Union to supply natural gas as an alternative to Russian gas. Very smart, very prudent. However, Azerbaijan now has leverage over the European Union, which also tended to bolster their overconfidence to attack Armenia. Armenia's Prime Minister addressed the Parliament on September 13th, early morning, following the night attack. Sotk, a community of about 1,000 people, is one of the Armenian towns, together with Goris and Yermuk, that were targets of a fire artillery and large-caliber firearms in their direction explained the spokesperson for the Armenian Ministry of Defense, Aram Torosian. How old are her husband and her, they're her in-law, her mother-in-law. Their kids are older. It's his birthday. Look what a happy birthday Azerbaijan sent me, says Valery Pogosian, who is 60, pointing to a large hole on the wall of his living room glass, plates, pieces of photo frames and dust from part of the roof that has come off now covers sofas and floors of the house of this man who says, the only thing I did in my life was working, driving a truck and sometimes in the fields, he says. Today it is his 60th birthday. He explains his house was bombed just three days before. The family says there has been enough pain under this roof, leaving a house, losing a son who was killed during the 2020 war. And now this. And then, uh, yeah, in the 1980s, pogroms okay. started in Azerbaijan. They started massacring Armenians. <laughs> With the war in Artsakh, there was a population swap. So all of the, all of the Azeris who lived in Armenia. Okay. This family, like many others in town, are ethnic Armenians who fled Azerbaijan in the early 90s during the first war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. Many ethnic Armenians fled Azerbaijan and came to live here. And Azeris living here fled to Azerbaijan. The hardest thing is seeing people run away from their homes, says Sevak Kachatrian, administrative head of Sotk community, who adds, whatever happens, I will stay. Do you live also in the town? And do you plan to stay? We walk with the head of Sotk across the town, together with a group of journalists. In a house, a woman has come back to collect her belongings and is currently placing the mattresses on a taxi waiting for her. In a house visibly affected by shelling, a dog waits next to the rubble and the glass of a shattered window. The townhome building of Sotk has also suffered several damages. A geranium with red flowers stands in the shattered window of an office next to a desk full of papers that someone filled out before the attack. On a table there is an ashtray with two bats. The facade of the town hall is full of bullet impact. Due to the fact that the conflict has been going on for a long time, we also asked Olesia Vartanian about the perspective of the past. She is Crisis Group's senior analyst in the South Caucasus, responsible for the coverage of the organization of a free conflict zone on Nagorno-Karabakh. After 2020, there were already some others aggressions, let's say, in the border. Can we say that this one is different than the previous one? 
Definitely, uh, because this one is uh, of a large scale. It takes place not just in one location. Uh, we can see uh, different types of uh, weaponry and also infantry being used here. So, and then in addition to that, uh, as you probably heard on the Armenian side, uh, they already report about some of the territories uh, that are getting occupied by the Azerbaijani troops. Probably there are people who think that why now, after a meeting in Brussels three weeks ago, that uh, people thought that maybe there is a path for negotiation. Uh, why this aggression three weeks after a meeting? Uh, on the Azerbaijani side, uh, there is with apparent feeling that they are very close to make Armenia uh, agree to the peace deal that would uh, close, I would say, the dispute around the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. As you probably know, uh, with this, the breakaway region uh, and uh, the local population declared independence at the beginning of 90s. Uh, then there was a war uh, that the Armenians uh, won at that time. And uh, in 2020, they lost, and most of the territory of that entity went back to Azerbaijan, to its direct control. Now the Russian peacekeepers are uh, present in in the remaining small area, still populated by, populated by the ethnic Armenians. Despite the ceasefire that was achieved following with a war in 2020, the latest one, there was still the issue about with future of Nagorno-Karabakh. So there was no clarity uh, what Nagorno-Karabakh would look like, uh, how it's going to be governed, uh, what will be security provisions for the local population. Azerbaijan currently feels that uh, it can uh, push for some of the vision uh, that is now prevalent in the Azerbaijani leadership. No one is hiding this vision. Uh, Baku has been quite consistent in its demand, saying that the conflict is over. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is just part of uh, Azerbaijan. It's another economic zone, they say. And the local Armenia, they just should accept the Azerbaijani passports and become ordinary citizens of Azerbaijan without any kind of special kind of privileges in terms of the governance or security. The Armenian leadership agreed to, to that, to his demands. But the Armenian leadership was also saying that, uh, in a way, you know, there, let's still find a way to discuss these things uh, and see if uh, there are any kind of special provisions that are needed for the ethnic Armenians who live there. Yeah, Russia is the main regional ally of Armenia. What kind of impact had the Ukrainian war here? Uh, Russia is investing heavily in military terms and diplomatically to achieve its goals. And it's an invasion of Ukraine that is still going on for more than six months now. And uh, what's happening is that for Russia, uh, it's definitely not a good time to have uh, another uh, conflict spot um, that would distract the Russian officials uh, that have still limited time. They have some certain kind of, you know, priori priorities, including with some of other regional powers like Turkey that is playing a very crucial role now in the Ukrainian story. And on the other hand, Russia would definitely want to avoid a situation when it has to respond to certain developments militarily. So, like, for example, in 2020, 
Russia was the one that proposed to send its peacekeepers. I'm not sure that Russia is now uh, in a position when it would want to even consider, you know, sharing in any of its uh, military might with anyone here in the region, in the South Caucasus. So it's uh, it's definitely the situation when Russia does would prefer to avoid uh, getting dragged directly in any kind of stories, uh, you know, that can distract it from um, implementing the goals that it has by invading uh, Ukraine. There are only kind of, you know, preliminary indications of how it's going to unfold. But uh, I'm afraid that all of that is definitely not really playing in favor of the continuous stability in, in the South Caucasus. Let's go back to Yerevan, Armenian capital. We have met some young people protesting for the soldiers. And they were just next to a pianist, a painter who makes caricatures, and a group of tourists doing their last shopping, and a group of young people who collect food for the soldiers. Yerevan was recently visited by Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. She visited Yerevan condemning what she said were illegal border attacks by Azerbaijan on Armenia. Make no mistake, this assault is unacceptable and exploratory and threatening prospects for the much-needed peace agreement, peace process to succeed. As an America, as an OSCE men's group co-chair and friend of Armenia and the United States, is committed to supporting a negotiated, comprehensive, and sustainable settlement, including especially those hostilities directed towards civilians. As US the Red Cross has also been working in the field for a long time, and we met in Yerevan with one of the emissaries of this organization to ask about the current situation on the border and the situation of civilians. My name is Zara Amatuni. I'm the spokesperson of the Armenia delegation of the International Committee of the Red Cross. I would like to ask you first, uh, you have the, your delegation have asked respect to the civilian people living in the border area of Armenia. How is the situation for this population? We, we learned yesterday that 2,000 people were evacuated. The situation in terms of its humanitarian impact is definitely uh, in, in the focus of our attention. Uh, and we, through our uh, sub-delegations in the north and south, uh, namely Ijevan and Gores, we have staffs there that are looking at the situation, uh, let's say, on an hourly basis, being in close uh, touch with the local authorities, but also offering our uh, services in terms of different needs that emerge as we speak and uh, they relate to different aspects, different services. For example, those related to healthcare, uh, forensic services on one hand. On the other, we're there to offer our um, humanitarian facilitation in uh, different processes and movements, such as, for example, support for evacuation of people if requested by the authorities. So these type of activities are still, still in the making, so we are really looking into all the possible actions that we can take to support the civilians in this difficult time. And the International Red Cross is based in Armenia since 1992. 
Exactly. Uh, you have lived moments like this one that people doesn't know what is going to happen next. Is this a similar moment that maybe 2020 or before, or we are living in a unique moment? I don't know. Unfortunately, uh, with our experience across the world with different type of uh, situations with armed conflicts, both non-international and international armed conflicts, there are situations of different intensity, but uh, the suffering of the people we, we see happening in so many places and there are some patterns that you can see in terms of how people suffer, what they have to endure. There are issues uh, ranging from people who are who, who are forced to leave their uh, habitat, their place of living, to the people that deal for many years with a missing relative and don't know where this person is. Uh, so and, and many other issues that come with with the displacement, migration, anything that uh, all the all the suffering that comes with the conflicts and their escalations. Here, being like more than three uh, de decades already, uh, the, the the conflict has had different, let's say, past different stages, being like really in its very active phase in the beginning of the 90s, then. Uh, with its escalations in 2016 and 20, uh, 2020. So uh, depending on the scale of the hostilities, on the, uh, on, the, on the situations along the borders, of course we have seen different type of, of the developments. And However, the humanitarian impact, and unfortunately I'm talking now, for example, about the issue of the missing, which has uh, been very painful in the 90s the region in the region through our delegations in Yerevan Baku and the mission in Nagorno-Karabakh we have uh, registered more than 4500 people that are reported missing until the today uh, however in the 2020th this figure has been extended to another more than 300 people that are unaccounted for since the escalation of the 2020th these issues are really um, taking a lot of they, they take a toll on the peoples of the, of the families that are suffering all these decades on their mental health or so many social issues on many legal aspects of their lives and basically not to mention also the issues related to the mental health of those that were displaced, that actually have lived along the borders with, the, with this feeling of insecurity. And um, again, uh, talking about the current situation, we really hope that the number of the missing will, will, not, will not expand. How is the work with these families of the missing people? We have worked over, the, um, over so many years with the families of the missing, basically creating possibilities for them, first of all, to get together uh, on one hand. On the other, we um, help them to understand their rights in this regard. So basically our teams working here and we have really uh, a very good and very strong team that uh, actually deals with different aspects of, uh, of, 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 of the issue of the missing from the mental health and psychosocial perspective to, uh, for example, some social issues and referring these people to some legal support or healthcare support in, several, in, in, in a number of cases or even helping them to be, um, go back as much as possible to the to, to, to feel the sense of normality when it comes to some social problems that they have endured because of, 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 of losing their breadwinner, for example, because of the conflict. Uh, I'm talking about projects that we have um, offered them in terms of small grants or microeconomic uh, initiatives over the years. More than 2,500 civilians had been displaced from their houses in bordering Armenian towns, and over 200 soldiers had been killed 
in the worst fighting since the 2020 war. Foreign ministers of Azerbaijan and Armenia met on Monday in New York through U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We have asked Richard Giragosian for his opinion about the future. It's very difficult to predict the future, but what are the possible scenarios that we have? Uh... Well, I'm optimistic. And the reason is the post-war reality was very difficult for Armenia to accept. In many ways, the war of 2020 and the recent escalation resulted in the death of Armenia's myth of invincibility, where uh, the arrogance and complacency of Armenia is no longer the case. Having said that, I'm optimistic because Armenia over the long term has an advantage of stability that is not shared by Azerbaijan. In fact, I would argue Armenia is much more stable and secure than all of its neighbors, including Turkey, Iran, Azerbaijan, but also even Georgia. And this element of legitimacy, democratic credentials, gives us a degree of resiliency. And this is why Armenia is nothing if not a nation of survivors. It was a special episode of a Traders podcast, this time in English. We hope to bring you more in the near future. Stay tuned and subscribe to our channels. My name is Jakub Gornitsky and Lola Garcia Hofrin is our reporter in Armenia right now. This episode was produced by Zuzanna Olenichak and edited by Marcin Hinz. Thanks for your supporting us. Always hit that subscribe button on Patreon and become our patron. Until the next time.